Okay, let's get started. Uh, my name is Peter, and uh, uh, today's uh, Mother's Day, and Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, because we're going to talk about the, the national security policy of the United States, so I'm going to make some comments, uh, Mother's Day comments uh, first. Uh, at this point of time, uh, I would like to just remind that everybody that uh, the U.S. national security policy since 1947 has probably victimized the millions and millions of mothers across the, the world. Uh, for example, uh, during the Vietnam War, probably 3 million people uh, were killed. And uh, all 3 million people uh, have their mothers uh, pretty much uh, saddened by, by, by their death. Uh, and the uh, Iraq war, as we know, is entirely unnecessary. And I believe 1 million people died, uh, Iraqis died during the Iraq war. And there were 1 million mothers pretty much uh, suffered from the U.S. national security policy. Uh, we know what happened in Afghanistan. And the more relevantly today, uh, during the Ukraine war, we know about uh, 3 million Ukrainians have left their countries. Most of them are women and children. Among them, I'm going to take a guess, hundreds of thousands are mothers who left their loved ones in Ukraine uh, that they have to get ready to be drafted to fight the Russians. And uh, on the Russia side, uh, I'm going to pretend I know there's uh, 300,000 Russian troops, 300,000 Russian soldiers currently in Ukraine. Uh, I don't necessarily believe they, they like the war themselves. And uh, I'm very sure their mothers uh, are warring to their death in Russia uh, while this war is going on. And lastly, uh, because of this uh, Ukraine war, uh, many poor mothers in the global South countries uh, are facing serious risks of starvation uh, of the, uh, for themselves and for their children. So I truly believe the, uh, the, the so-called national security policy of the United, of the United States government is, uh, has been making a mess and a misery for every, all the mothers, uh, uh, you know, in the entire world. So domestically, I believe the U.S. government is also in very, very deep trouble. Uh, as we know, that the Capitol Hill today is surrounded by uh, razor-wired fences. And, uh, you know, this is for the first time, uh, uh, you know, this institution was, you know, heavily fortified uh, to, to, you know, and... Uh, and uh, due to the recent leaked uh, draft opinion on Roe v. Wade, uh, Wade that now the U.S. Supreme Court is all fenced in. And uh, so it seems to me the U.S. government is becoming more and more uh, a government of, not of the people, not by the people, and not for the people. So that is why I'm doing this podcast, you know, to, to inform you, the people, and to shame those who are highly privileged in the government, whether it's on a bench 
or it's in the executive branch, or it's in the legislation, le legislature. So now let's get to today's topic. Today I want to talk about uh, how an infamous racial discrimination case made Donald Trump a victim. So you have to bear with me a little uh, bit because uh, Donald Trump probably is uh, one of the uh, high-profile beneficiary of a white privilege. But how come he be become a victim? So this will have to go. We have to go back to 2016 uh, of this uh, FBI counterintelligence operation. It's called the Crossfire Hurricane. Crossfire Hurricane. Uh, in that national uh, counterintelligence operation, which you know, by the way, it's the same thing as national security operation. The FBI and the so-called intelligence communities interfered or attempted to interfere and overturn a presidential election under the color of, uh, under the excuse of national security. Uh, many books has been written uh, uh, about the actions taken by the, by these uh, intelligence communities on Donald Trump and his uh, presidential campaign and his organization. And uh, I'm not going to go over that. Uh, I'm just going to try to explain the illegality or illegality of these operations from a historic perspective. So this whole thing actually goes back. This is a whole thing called the national security state, or uh, sometimes uh, folks refer to as a, uh, a deep state, how it all started. Now, by my research, this goes back to uh, about nine, 1939. Uh, in 1939, there is a, a case that uh, went up to the U.S. Supreme Court about uh, wiretapping. Uh, the case is called uh, Nardoni versus U.S. Nardoni, N-A-R-D-O-N-E. Uh, in, uh, in that case, the U.S. Supreme Court firmly decided that uh, wiretapping is illegal and the evidence collected through wiretapping cannot be used in a federal court for criminal proceeding. At the time, the president is uh, 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 Franklin D. Roosevelt, and uh, he has a, a attorney general by the name of uh, Robert Jackson. So needless to say, uh, uh, FDR uh, uh, got concerned because uh, uh, he is uh, still in the middle of the war and uh, he needs to gather what's going on uh, in regard to the national defense, aka national security. So he sent a confidential memo to his attorney general, uh, Robert Jackson, who want, uh, he, uh, basically FDR wants to see how to go about this uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision that bars any evidence collected through wiretapping to be used for criminal prosecution. So this is FDR's word in that memo. He said he was convinced that the U.S. Supreme Court, well, first of all, he say uh, the FDR concluded that 
the this uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, of of this Nardoni case uh, cannot be applicable to the uh, to what uh, the, the 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 national security people is doing. Basically, uh, even though FDR said he agreed with the broad purpose of this uh, Supreme Court decision, he said, and I quote, he was not convinced that the Supreme Court never intended any dictum in this particular case, not only case, which is decided to apply to grave matters involving the defense of the nation. So basically, the FDR sent this memo, a two-page memo, uh, on the White House stationery, signed FDR to his uh, attorney general, Robert Jackson, basically saying these uh, uh, banning of a wiretapping by the government, by the U.S. Supreme Court, is not applicable, not applicable when it comes to national security. So this is in 1994. Fast forward to 1944. Uh, actually, fast forward to 1942. Uh, the FDR uh, started uh, uh, the, the Japanese internment. And uh, the Japanese internment uh, was uh, protested by a few cases. The most famous one is the Korematsu case. So this time, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, is, uh, uh, you know, discussing whether it is uh, legal or not legal to uh, mass incarcerate Japanese Americans during the war. Uh, and uh, so that case was decided in 1944. And uh, pretty much all the justices acknowledge this is a racial discrimination case. And... Uh, and uh, at this time, uh, Robert Jackson, then the uh, attorney general for FDR, uh, was appointed to the and uh, confirmed to be the uh, Supreme Court uh, justice. And uh, uh, now Justice Jackson is uh, fully aware of uh, what uh, FDR said about the wiretapping. And uh, apparently he disagreed with uh, his president then. And he, again, disagree with the president when it comes to uh, the mass incarceration of uh, Japanese Americans. Ian Korematsu, uh, Jackson, Justice Jackson, uh, now ja ja Justice Jackson, is uh, one of the three uh, dissenters. Uh, they, uh, Jackson, ja uh, disagree with the majority, and he wrote probably one of the best uh, dissenting opinions. And uh, so I'm going to quote him a little bit. Here, basically, the, uh, the, uh, the racial discrimination is acknowledged by all justices. The question is that whether the court should allow racial discrimination uh, uh, for the excuse of a national security because the U.S. is at war with Japan. So here's uh, what uh, Justice Jackson wrote. Quote, I don't think the civil courts may be asked to execute a military expedient that has no place in law under the Constitution. I would reverse the judgment 
and discharge the prisoners. So I'm going to stop here. So what he's saying is that the court is this court is a civil court. Uh, if we are in such a military emergency, then maybe martial law should be declared. When martial law is declared, then the courts will be closed. The president, the commander in chief, will make all decisions judicially, militarily, or anything else. But uh, however, we don't have a martial law in America at the time, and the court is still functioning. So it is not possible for civil courts to execute a military uh, order, which is the mass incarceration of a Japanese American. So that's his reasoning. He believed, you know, he concluded that the, the, the judgment below should be reversed and all the Japanese Americans should be released from the internment camp. He then said this, uh, this is uh, like a, a warning to the people who are reading this. And I'm going to quote, this is what Justice Jackson said. I quote, the principle then lie about like a loaded weapon, ready for the hand of any authority that can bring forward a plausible claim of an urgent need. Every repetition embeds that principle more deeply in our law and thinking and expands it to new purposes, end quote. So I'm going to paraphrase what Justice Jackson's warning is. Basically, he's warning the majority and, I guess, the generation after, future generation, that if this court agree that for military purposes, for national security purposes, we can ignore the Constitution, then we set a principle, we set up a theory. That theory can be used like a loaded gun. Can, that can be used by any administration, any authority, to use national security as an urgent excuse to ignore the Constitution of the United States. He used the word repetition, meaning this principle, unconstitutional, principle can be repeatedly used by the authorities, by the government. And uh, it will be get in our law, in our thinking, the entire country is going to accept this kind of a, this principle. And uh, it's going to, uh, and this also, this principle is going to expand to be used in any, I quote, new purposes for any other reasons. So, that is a very, very uh, uh, refreshing uh, opinion uh, because it is so applicable even today. So the key word I'm going to go over below is going to be, I'm going to talk about the repetition. Uh, that's what uh, Justice uh, uh, Jackson has warned us, saying that Korematsu and its uh, principle embedded in Korematsu can be repeatedly used by U.S. government on its people. Okay, that's an important thing. Uh, so today, the national security state 
you know, those intelligence communities, they no longer need an actual bomb dropped in Hawaii to, to come up with a national security excuses. Okay. These are deep state. I call them deep state, national security state. Use whatever term you want to. They can use any unverifiable claim to start a national security operation. The FBI will call it a counterintelligence operation. Uh, they can say, oh, there is a disinformation campaign by a foreign nation, by Russia, uh, about our election. Therefore, we're going to investigate all the political candidates and their campaign staff, right? And also, they can just claim there is a cyber attack by China, by Russia, by Iran. You will never know those claims are true or not. But you will have to place your blind trust in these deep state operatives because they can just falsely justify any urgent need of a national security initiative. So, uh, you know, basically, uh, uh, which I'm going to explain later, national security state is legally allowed to spread disinformation. Let me repeat, national security state is legally allowed to spread disinformation, which I'm going to t talk about quite a bit later, because the spies are legally allowed to lie. They are, the spies are legally allowed to lie to their superiors within the same organization. Basically, the FBI agent can lie to their superior. And also, the spies are allowed to lie to the public. You can think about all the lies made by, say, James Comey. Uh, what's the other guy? Uh, that's famous guy. James Clapper. Uh, and they can lie. They are legally allowed to lie. So now I'm going to go back to, to go over the, I call them repetition, as warned by Justice Jackson. The repeated use of a national security as an excuse to deprive civil liberty in this country. Okay. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is uh, repetition one, I call it. It's J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Uh, there is an excellent book uh, uh, written by author Tim Weiner, W-E-I-N-E-R. The name of the book is called Enemies, History of the FBI. It's a very good book. Uh, Hoover's theory, uh, wiretapping without warrant, uh, is slightly different from FDR. The FDR basically is saying for national security, uh, we can, uh, the president can wiretap anyone without a warrant because it's for national security. J. Edgar Hoover takes a different approach. He basically is saying wiretapping is legal. It's legal as long as, as the collected information is not used in a criminal proceeding. So let me repeat Edgar Hoover's theory. He's saying, as I can wiretap anyone I want. And he did. He wiretapped the Supreme Court justices who he does not like. And he's saying, as long as I'm not using the collected information to start a criminal prosecution, I can wiretap anyone. Okay. So as you know, under Edgar Hoover, uh, we did a lot of red scare activities. Uh, the FBI targeted labor activists civil rights activists, and the anti-war activists, right? So it is uh, important 
to understand that national security is not law enforcement. Let me repeat, national security is not law enforcement. National security is a counterintelligence operation. And uh, it is a, it's a spy agency. Uh, that the target is not a suspect, a target, a designated enemy target. And it is legal, it is entirely legal for the spies to lie because they are considered not as a witnesses, but uh, as a witness, but uh, they are considered as a uh, informant. They are considered the assets of the counterintelligence operation. Okay, so so that is uh, is uh, is the repetition one of the Korematsu under the J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Uh, the J. Edgar Hoover's FBI uh, left in my opinion two embarrassing legacies among many of them. Two I I enjoy to read about the most. Uh, the first embarrassing thing is this. The FBI wiretapped uh, uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, and uh, in one of the uh, sessions, uh, um, it is uh, on the recorded tape, uh, Martin Luther King is in a motel room uh, witnessing a sexual assault. He is on the spot. And he, not, uh, not only Martin Luther King did not stop the sexual assault, he actually encouraged the ongoing sexual assault. This particular tape is still currently under seal. So think about it. It's already some 40 years after this tape was made by the FBI through the uh, uh, illegal activity. This tape is still under seal by the court. And uh, uh, although the court has allowed journalists to listen in and uh, uh, summarize the content of the tape, but currently this tape is still under seal. So that's one embarrassing legacy of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI, because uh, the people will ask, well, who is the criminal here? Is the FBI the criminal or Martin Luther King the criminal? So that will be a topic to debate in another day. Another embarrassing uh, legacy is the so-called Chinese scientist program. as you may not know, a uh, lot of uh, uh, Republicans are complaining that uh, China has uh, stolen the U.S. technology and all that. But this claim is not new. This claim started uh, way back. And uh, the FBI is, uh, you know, on top of that also. In the FBI case, uh, they have a so-called Chinese scientist program which is formally started around 1975, but it started actually way back since 1950s. In 1968, an author by the name of William Ryan, uh, R-Y-A-N, published a book called The China Cloud, The America's Tragic Blunder and China's Rise to Nuclear Power. This book is written in 1968, about four years after China uh, 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 successfully uh, uh, built the first nuclear bomb. This book basically described how U.S. government sent 80 Chinese scientists 
back to China to build an atomic bomb. Uh, that is uh, it, that is not well known to the general public. Basically, the racial profiling uh, done by the FBI uh, under J. Edgar Cooper uh, drove about 80 Chinese scientists back to China to build the atomic bomb and the missile technology, basically. So fast forward to 2014, uh, the, I think the, 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 the nephew of this author, uh, this author's name is uh, uh, Ryan, uh, William Ryan. He published book in 1968. So many years, uh, many decades later in 2014, uh, this author's uh, nephew posted his comment on Amazon uh, because this book is still on sale. He said, this book, uh, quote, this book was written by my uncle, Bill Ryan. It delivers a perspective on the coming of the nuclear age, Mao's superpower program that is seldom told or admitted that the United States purged U.S. residents and citizens of Chinese heritage because they were perceived to be different and in the process provided for a foundation of a nuclear and rocket scientists and engineers that Mao slash China could have never dreamed of gaining at the time. I would think that a lesson would be learned, but clearly he has not. Uh, so, so what I'm trying to say is that this is just another example that the, 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 the national security policy of the United States literally backfired. And you actually make the 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 the, the, the four uh, enemy uh, nation much stronger. So uh, there is uh, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, abuse of power is well known, and it was uh, fully exposed in a in a congressional investigations called the Church Committee investigation. So Google that, you will find a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, what FBI did under the you know, color of a national security. So this is a repetition one. Now I'm gonna talk about repetition two. Again, it's going back to Justice Jackson's warning that the principle established in Korematsu decision is going to be repetitively used by the government. Okay, this is a repetition two. The repetition two is uh, Vietnam War. Between 1947 to the, I think, 1964, that's the year of a Tonkin Resolution. Or maybe it's 1965, I don't remember, but it's mid 1960s. Between 1947 to the Tonkin, Tonkin Resolution, uh, as we know, there is, uh, uh, by the, the Pentagon paper, there's a uh, uh, a multitude of mis disinformation campaigns uh, launched by the administration, uh, administration after administration, uh, that uh, to support the Vietnam War policy, to support the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. Uh, that is uh, well documented, very well documented in the in the Pentagon paper. Uh, there is audio book on YouTube, uh, Pentagon paper. Uh, you can listen to it. You can listen to it, and uh, there's uh, uh, internally, 
at administrations after administrations, almost everyone is uh, were told that getting involved in Vietnam is not only not in the best interest of national security for the United States, it, uh, it's not going to be effective. And uh, but again and again, uh, the the U.S. government uh, launched various disinformation campaigns to support its uh, uh, Vietnam War policies. Now, but the, this Vietnam War policy, uh, especially when it comes uh, when it reached to early 1970s, is come to a very embarrassing halt, and uh, that is because the publication of the Pentagon paper by the New York Times. This is where actually the power of the National Security Authority clashes with the newspaper outlet, New York Times. Uh, you will think, uh, basically, uh, what Daniel Ellsberg get up is a pure espionage case. It's a pure disclosure of a top secret national defense information. And uh, as a matter of fact, when the New York Times initially received Daniel Asperger's, uh, uh, Daniel Asperger's uh, Pentagon paper, they don't know for sure. They did not know for sure they are, they are allowed to publish this. And in fact, the, the, the lawyer of New York Times resigned uh, because uh, the, they believe that publishing Pentagon paper will be considered a, a crime under the national security law. So still remember this, uh, the Korematsu, in Korematsu decision, the court has said for the national defense, national security uh, purposes, the president, the commander in chief, the person in charge of the national security can pretty much do anything. All right. So the New York Times lawyer actually agreed with that decision and he resigned. They resigned. So the actual case for the rights to publish the Pentagon paper in New York Times is, a ta uh, is a represented by uh, a law professor. I do not know the name of the, the, the school, but it's actually done by the law professor. And this time around, the U.S. Supreme Court actually agreed with the newspaper, not with the Pentagon or not with the government. And I have a different explanation for that. So basically, how come this time the U.S. Supreme Court allowed publication of top-secret national security document? Isn't that kind of a contradictory to the Korematsu decision? It is. And uh, here's why. I believe the reason. The, uh, of course, the Supreme Court uh, used the Youngstown Steel case to, to justify that the commander-in-chief the president does not have unlimited power, even during the war. And uh, so, so going back to this is that my explanation to that is this. The, by the time, by 1968, uh, especially after the Tet Offensive, the entire nation recognized that the entire Vietnam War is a criminal action by the United States government. Not only it is a criminal action, it caused severe casualties to American troops. 
you literally have a uh, body bags after body bags of a white soldiers coming home. And the, 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 the draft, the military draft is mandatory. And you will be hunted down, whether you are black or white, if you don't respond to the draft. So the entire country is getting very, very uh, on the opposing side of the Vietnam War. And the, the Supreme Court is fully aware of that. So I think it's because of that, the, uh, the, uh, the US, US Supreme Court allowed the publication of the Pentagon paper. So that is repetition two. So let me, get, I'm going to get on repetition three. So each repetition, the US government always have a national security excuse. Repetition three is a war on terror. War on, in war on terror, uh, the, uh, it's just another period where the principle uh, established uh, by Korematsu is being used uh, to take away uh, uh, civil liberties. Uh, Bush, the George W. Bush administration faced a similar situation uh, uh, as co when compared to the Pentagon paper, the release of the Pentagon paper. Uh, the, uh, there, uh, I think in the 19, sorry, 2005, I, I can be wrong, 2005 or, or, or 2008, I don't remember exactly. The New York Times received the information and uh, about the, the NSA uh, wiretapping, NSA surveillance activities. And the New York Times actually had uh, drafted the article to be published. And they informed the White House, the George W. Bush's White House, saying they're about to publish this uh, NSA illegal activities. So the Bush White House invited the New York Times editors to the White House. And somehow the Bush administration was able to convince New York Times not to publish that NSA article. You can Google about it. That, that, that's well known. In this case, the, uh, the, the, uh, the mainstream media actually agreed with the government that the, for the sake of the national security, don't publish the illegal activities by the US government. And uh, what is more impressive about this uh, uh, war on terror era is this. There is a uh, not so well-known lawyer, but he actually should be well-known. He's in, by the name of Zhang Yu. Uh, he is a Korean American. His last name spells Y O O, Zhang Yu. Zhang Yu, uh, I believe, is responsible of a three internal memos, legal memos, uh, within the Bush White House. And the first one is a, a torture memo. It's about the legality of a torturing, uh, uh, the terrorists outside the, uh, territory of the United States. The second memo by Zhang Yu is called the surveillance memo. This is where uh, Zhang Yu uh, uh, justified that uh, the, the, the wiretapping uh, NSA surveillance is legal. And the third uh, legal memo by Zhang Yu is this, is on 
the legality of using military domestically against the enemy combatants domestically. So let me repeat. The third memo is about whether it's legal or not to either search or arrest domestic persons, treating them as enemy combatants, using the military force, not even the police, the military force. And uh, in all three memos, uh, Zhang Yu, again, this is a, he is a Korean American. He is uh, concluded that the, the law and the decisions by the U.S. Supreme Court allow all three to happen. And so the third one, in my opinion, is, is the exact nature of a Japanese internment. Basically, the third memo basically saying is the commander in chief has the legal authority to use the military to go after, quote, enemy combatants domestically, end quote. Uh, this is important that, uh, because that's the exact nature of Japanese internment. There, the FDR basically is treating, was treating the Japanese Americans as enemy combatants already within the territory of the United States. By designating all these Japanese Americans as enemy combatants, therefore the US under the National Security Authority, we can round them up and send them to the internment camp. So this is the third repetition of a Korematsu's principle in the United States. Now I'm going to go to the fourth repetition. Now this will come to Donald Trump. The fourth repetition that I know of will be the 2016 Crossfire Hurricane. Crossfire Hurricane is the code name uh, of uh, of uh, investigating this uh, Russia collusion and the interference to the United States presidential election. And uh, like I said, there's uh, many books has been written about uh, this uh, uh, this particular operation, uh, including uh, the uh, report, report by the Inspector General Michael Horowitz, right? And uh, also uh, this uh, this cross crossfire hurricane is uh, Today, even today, is actively being investigated and prosecuted by the special prosecutor, John Doran. Uh, we know about that, right? So we all know about now that uh, the entire uh, case was uh, predicated on gossips uh, among, uh, among the intelligence communities. It's basically initially started by this uh, George Paparadus. Uh, Paparatus, uh, uh, he has a Greek name. Uh, he has mentioned in a casual setting that, uh, that, uh, uh Russia may have some damaging information about, uh, Hillary Clinton and they are willing to share with the, 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 the Trump campaign. So that this particular gossip, which has no particular documentary evidence, is the predication of the entire crossfire hurricane investigation. Again, crossfire hurricane is not a law enforcement act activity. 
it is a counterintelligence activity. In a counterintelligence activity, you don't have to tell the truth. Uh, you can lie. Uh, Christopher Steele's dossier, uh, we know about it, is, uh, I'm told, uh, they are made of lies after lies. And the, and the, the actual B, uh, the FBI counterintelligence and the CIA and the DNI and all those uh, Homeland Security, they all, uh, you know, rely on that dossier to, to initiate many, many investigations. Because in a national security operation, Christopher Steele is considered a asset, an informant. They are immune. He is immune from criminal prosecution if he was caught lying. Okay, so this is literally how the entire crossfire hurricane gets started. And it started uh, in July 2016. I know Trump announced his uh, uh, election campaign in the summer of uh, 2015. And a year later is the, you know, the crossfire hurricane started. That's before the election. So to me, that is a deliberate attempt by the so-called national security state to interfere and later on to overturn the result of a presidential election in 2016. And uh, so from that perspective, uh, the decision in Korematsu court is uh, upheld that uh, for national security reasons, for the purpose of uh, preventing Russians interfering with the U.S. election, the national security state has the legal authority to interfere and even overturn the election of a president. And uh, that is why I'm saying that Trump himself was also has become a victim of judicial white privilege. Again, the judicial white privilege means the court will use its own discretion to, to, to deprive racial minorities' rights and privileges, despite the fact the Constitution protects those rights and privileges regardless of your race, ethnicity, or gender. And uh, for Trump, uh, for, uh, for the Trump people, for, the, for his supporters, the Inspector General's report about crossfire hurricane and the current investigation and prosecution of all these uh, government wrongdoings by Special Prosecutor John Doran uh, is uh, too little too late. To Trump and his people, uh, the real relief will never come. And because the court is always going to side with the national security state, just like the, what the Korematsu court did. Basically, if it's a national security urgent, uh, uh, urgency, then the court is going to step aside and allow the, these uh, bureaucrats the FBI, the CIA, the, National, uh, the Homeland Security, the Disinformation Board of Homeland Security, they can do whatever they want to do. The court is not going to intervene. So there will be no real relief 
for the Trump, for, for what wrong the Trump campaign has suffered. So, so that pretty, uh, you know, that's, you know, oh, the, one more thing is important is that as soon as Trump is labeled to be potentially a Russian asset, despite by these national security operatives, despite the fact that nothing evidential has ever come out to prove that Trump is a Russia, Russian asset, he is going to forever carry this bad name of being Putin's supporters, Putin's agent. And despite the fact there's no proof of that. So that is how the national security state uh, 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 pretty much uh, uh, injured innocent people uh, uh, for things they are legally allowed to do, uh, but the national security authority will say, no, no, that is not allowed. So this is repetition four. Repetition five. Uh, is really a, not a complete repeti uh, repetition because, but there's something that can be talked about because uh, this is a, going to, we're going to go to uh, year 2020, the presidential election. Uh, there is a very uh, famous person in the Trump campaign uh, that was uh, harmed by the national security state and then himself become a, 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 the same person who tried to abuse his own power. Uh, this guy's name is Michael Flynn. He is a lieutenant general. Uh, during the Crossfire Hurricane investigation, uh, he was one of the target. Uh, he spent about the $2 million in legal fees, and he ended up having to take a plea, admitting that he lied to the FBI. And yada yada yada. So naturally, I'm very sympathetic uh, with the Michael Flynn situation. Remember, not a lot of people can spend two million dollars for his lawyers and still end up of found, uh, to to admit uh, being guilty of a crime for 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 things he is legally allowed to do. Okay. So, but in the year 2020 election, the first of all, the Trump people was very enraged. Uh, they, they got so enraged, they, they eventually stormed the Capitol Hill, right? But I believe that the, the Trump people genuinely believed that Trump was profoundly wronged by the national security state, including the FISA court. Remember, there's a four different FISA warrants signed by the courts. FISA court, in my opinion, is a total rubber stamp court uh, for, for the national security uh, apparatus. You know, it's just a, some kangaroo court. You know, I mean, I, I remember this statistics, like 99% of the warrants sent to the FISA court is approved. And uh, so, so the Trump people generally believe that Obama's national security operatives directed the conspiracy against the Trump before even he got elected. Uh, remember, this is 2020. And at this time, you know, like I said before, Trump never got actual relief from what's been done to him. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, in supporting these uh, beliefs by the Trump supporters, 
the Inspector General Horowitz and the Special Prosecutor Doran's work has proven, partially at least, that Trump's uh, claims are, are somewhat true. So when Trump lost the 2020 election, it is not entirely unfounded by the Trump people to believe that his political enemies have used the same Russia claims to jeopardize his re-election bid by disinformation that Trump is a Russian spy, a, a Russian asset, at least. You know, the, the Trump uh, supporters of this uh, voter fraud claims, whether it's true or not, it is, uh, you know, doesn't matter because it's simply to add gasoline to an already burning fire pit because uh, the Trump supporters remain extremely angry about what happened in 2016. You know, as we know, the court did not side with the Trump supporters of those uh, uh, voter fraud claims, right? The court can never intervene or offer relief to Trump campaign for what they have suffered from this uh, crossfire hurricane investigation, right? So the Trump supporters can genuinely believe that judges has become part of the deep state. The court has become, again, just like what uh, Justice Jackson said, the court has become an instrument of a military policy. So, so it is ironic. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chicken come home to the roost kind of ironic that the Korematsu decision not only legalized racial discrimination for national security, it also legalized the exercise of a national security authority over any other domestic targets without sufficient predication of actual ties to a foreign enemy. There's no evidence of actual ties of those Japanese Americans to the empire of Japan. This, today, there's no evidence that Trump or Trump campaign willingly or unwillingly is becoming a Russian asset. Right? So now the targets of these uh, uh, national security state can include the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, the most powerful white man in the world. So in 2020, basically Trump has no recourse for his loss, for, his, uh, for the wrongs as a president he suffered you know, under the hands of his own deep state. So on the outside, he has asked his supporters to march to the Capitol Hill. And uh, we know the riot happened afterwards. Because there's a lot of rage, anger, right? And within his circle, his advisor, specifically this guy, Michael Flynn, the guy who was pursued by the national security state during Trump presidency, he proposed to Trump to declare martial law and to use the military to seize the voting machines. So think about it. Michael Flynn, a lieutenant general, who suffered from the national security state, he himself is proposing to declare martial law 
and to use the military to seize the voting machines for the purpose of overturning uh, the result of a presidential uh, election. So, you know, yes, the, the, the chickens do come home to roost. And uh, from my research, uh, the, the, the judicial white privilege is bad for white people also. Uh, in four different incidents throughout the history, uh, the decisions by the white judges on the U.S. Supreme Court has actually harmed everyone, including the white people. We now, today we see both, you know, we see black rage shootings. We also see white rage shootings or riots, right? The January 6th is a riot, at least. The riot is out of anger and rage. And the Trump supporters no longer, during that time, no longer believe uh, believe that we actually have a democracy. They actually do believe that the national, the deep state, the national security state has taken over the democracy. And, uh, and, uh, and, uh, you know, that's just, you know, give us repeated warning. That, uh, that when the court no longer decide cases according to the constitution, but uh, willingly becomes an instrument of a national security state, then it's going to be bad, not only bad for the racial minorities, but it's also very bad for everybody. So with that said, that's the end of this episode. And uh, as we are all aware of this uh, uh, leaked draft of uh, uh, Supreme Court opinion, uh, 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 overruling uh, Roe v. Wade and Casey, uh, I will have a a whole lot to talk about. Uh, Because uh, as uh, as uh, if you have listened in uh, last time, I have a talk about, uh, oh no, actually I, I talk about this uh, recent case called the uh, U.S. versus Medora, uh, which is a Puerto Rican case, uh, uh, which I find out to be very useful in the in my theory of a judicial white privilege. Uh, this uh, recent incident uh, of a Roe v. Wade being overruled is another fine, fine example of a judicial white privilege, and there is a lot to talk about. Roe Wade in the upcoming episodes. Uh, currently, I was just going to hold my uh, breath and uh, cross my fingers and uh, in hope that the U.S. Supreme Court will finalize its draft opinion and so that I can safely uh, uh, provide my opinion about uh, why uh, the overturning of Roe Wade is another fine example of a judicial white privilege. With that, uh, thank you very much for listening. And uh, that's end of this episode. Thank you again for listening. And, uh, and uh, we will, uh, I will see you next time. Goodbye.